0: In this Greenlight episode, I will speak with Ike Emahelu about his new role as partner at Aiken, Gump, Strauss, Hoyer, and Feld. Although Ike knew he wanted to be a lawyer from his earliest days in Nigeria, he never imagined he would get to work on two of the three largest onshore wind projects in the U.S., focusing almost exclusively on renewable energy project finance since 2008. Ike has worked on impactful projects throughout Africa, Latin America, and the U.S., including uh, through the Energy Access Relief Fund, which provided support to energy entrepreneurs facing liquidity challenges due to COVID-19. I'll speak with Ike about his career journey in clean energy, as well as the key trends that he thinks will make or break renewable energy in m and in the coming years. Thanks for tuning into The Green Light. Now let's dive in. I'm Catherine McLean, founder and CEO of Dylan Green, and today I have with me Ike Emahelu um, from Aiken Gump. Welcome, Ike.
1: Nice to be here. Thanks, Catherine.
0: I wanted to start by first congratulating you. I know that you've just taken a new role on as partner at Akin Gump. Tell me a bit about yourself and your new role.
1: Oh, sure. So I just joined Aiken Gump about two months ago, and I used to be a partner at Mountain Rose Fulbright. I was at Norton Rose Fulbright for 14 years and before yeah. that I was at I, I was at and Williams and Sullivan and & Cromwell. So I'm I'm excited this is an opportunity to join Akin Gump. Um, Aking Gump is a terrific firm and my role is to hopefully help connect different pieces of Akin Gump that are focused mm-hmm. on the energy transition, right? So Akin Gump has probably one of the most the leading public law and policy groups. And so many issues on the renewable energy side are driven by policy. And so as taking Gump, you know, was started in Dallas and has a huge footprint in Texas and, you know, represent a lot of traditional energy companies. And so I'm really excited to be here and sort of bring everything together, right? The old traditional energy companies, decarbonization and the energy, transaction, energy transition. So I'm, I'm excited to be here.
0: Great. And did you always know that you wanted to be a lawyer, Uh, like focused on the energy transition? Like, how did you make your way into that space?
1: Do you want me to go back to kindergarten or...
0: (laughs) me about yeah. the day you were born <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly right you know it's like you know everybody congratulated themselves because finally Ike is here but no I've always sort of wanted to be a lawyer I think I told my parents when I was seven years old I wanted to be a lawyer but the energy transition was somewhat relatively new um, mm-hmm. I grew up in Nigeria and you know in law school and I thought I would do something that was Sort of relevant to Africa and infrastructure, you know, sort of happened onto infrastructure as like the output for it. And so my initial interest in this world was to be a projects lawyer, learn exactly how do you structure infrastructure projects, how do you bring them mm-hmm. to market, how do you make it work out. That evolved into realizing that, quite frankly, the US has become kind of like an emerging market when it comes <laughs> to renewable energy. <laughs> right? It, you know, when it
0: comes to renewable energy, when it like, comes to renewable,
1: renewable energy. energy yeah, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to renewable energy, I mean, there's still some issues that we're borrowing from others. You know, offshore yeah. wind is relatively new here, so we're borrowing mm-hmm. some of those concepts from here. So yeah. once I sort of saw the opportunity to do this here, I just immediately latched on to this emerging sort of wall. So I've yeah. been focused on almost exclusively on project finance since 2008.
0: And I know that you've worked on projects, as you said, through the Americas, Africa and Latin America. What is some of the work that you're most proud of and why? So, for example, I'm aware that you have done some work related to Energy Access Relief Fund, Capture Energy, Mulligan Solar, and others. But interesting to hear your thoughts around what you're most proud of and why.
1: Sure. The Energy Access Relief Fund, that you mentioned, is a good example of sort of the power of the private, of the market, right? So that was basically a fund that was set up to help companies that were facing liquidity crisis due to COVID. And so these are companies that had great business models, were doing well prior to the pandemic. Then the pandemic occurred and they were facing liquidity crisis. And the fund was designed to provide subsidized loans to them. And I represented investors into the fund. So that, that, was, that was fantastic. I think I'm especially proud of kind of the diversity of my practice. So I worked on two of the three largest onshore wind farms in the U.S. For one, I represented the lenders, and the other represented the sponsors. I worked on the first standalone energy battery project to be financed on a non-recourse basis, and these were and each of these deals came up with brand new issues. That's kind of why I joke that we're a bit of an emerging market in the U.S. So I was just basically being proud of the fact that I've been able to work on transactions that hadn't been done before Mm -hmm. or that came up with new issues, you know, in their own way, help propels us to a, you know, a net zero world.
0: Right. Uh, What are you most looking forward to at your time at Aiken and why?
1: Really my colleagues. I've spent Mm -hmm. two months here now and I've been to, you know, multiple offices, meeting, Mm -hmm. and it's just an exceptional group of people. You know, I sort of hinted at it earlier. Akin Gump is really uniquely placed to be able to maintain its role in this energy transition. Mm-hmm. So the PLP group, the public one policy group out of D.C., they are among the best in terms of what they do. For instance, they represent the solar industry on issues surrounding tariff. And right. so to get the benefit of their experience and the benefit of their insight into their policy, into policy, and then take that and work with my colleagues out of our Houston office, our Dallas office, that represents traditional energy companies. Many of whom are interested in carbon capture and sequestration now. And I think the firm we've probably worked on more, you know, CCUS deals than pretty much any other firm. And then add all of to that all the renewable energy work that we do. So in some places you hear people arguing about. Should we do gas or should we do solar? Should we do, you know, you know what should we do as we get to the energy transition? And I think my experiences at, at Akin Gump and with the clients that we serve is that all the clients seems like there's some sort of an agreement. Everybody's already investing in the space. And so, you know, to be at a firm where we sort of move away from those sort of foundational questions yeah. and into like, let's okay, let's go on, let's just get it done. So that has been very exciting for me.
0: What are some of the key trends that you think will make or break kind of renewable energy M&A in the coming years?
1: One is the policy. I think it's hard to predict what's going to come out of D.C. And so if there's less clarity on government policy going forward, um, I think it affects pricing and affects people's appetite to take risk. And it's not just on the tax side, but also on sort of the pure regulatory side. Mm -hmm. So we see that with PJM, for instance, on the capacity markets. So if there's lack of clarity as to what the regulators would do, that sort of affects people's appetite to do deals. And then I also I'm still not convinced that we've as a market that we've completely appropriately priced like climate change. So I think as more unexpected climate issues come up, right? And if there is no correspondence, say, insurance policy or structuring for that, I think it's going to have an impact in the industry going forward. But these are more sort of long-term issues. The more near-term, it's the things you, you turn the TV and you hear. It's like, will there be inflation or not inflation? Will interest rates go up or down? But I think the market has a way of dealing with those sort of more near-term issues. But the fundamental issues of clarity on the government policy side, what are we doing about sudden changes in weather patterns and how they affect particular projects? And again, the, the last thing I'll mention is also kind of related to government policy, but solving the transmission issues. Because increasingly, without a good way to transport the electrons from where we generate them to load centers, it's always going to have an issue, I think.
0: Are there any sort of like structural issues that you are seeing that could possibly affect the renewable energy industry? Um, You know, one
1: one issue that I'm not sure enough people are focusing on is, I I think there's greater need to democratize this sector, bring in, you know, underserved communities to participate both as end users and as investors in this sector. I mean, I think a lot of the focus so far the way the market has evolved is through say the tax equity model where the government gives you actual tax credits. So you have to be a profitable entity in order to benefit from the credits. Now that makes sense and there are very good policy reasons for that. But as more and more people want to participate in the renewable energy, want to make sure that not only are they getting clean energy for their homes, but that they can also invest in the clean energy sector. I think it will become more important to find ways to bring on the sub-communities. I was actually very happy to hear, I think in the last week, the government was announcing some initiatives to allow people to invest into community solar, for instance. Right now, if you want solar on your roof, you have to have a home with a big roof that right. can <laughs> take on the solar, right? right. <laughs> so if you live in apartments, it's harder for you sure. to participate in it. So the community solar approach kind of came up to help solve that, right? Where you can just say, okay, there'll be a specific solar plant elsewhere and then you can sign on to get the benefit of that solar plant. But I think there are some government initiatives to make that a bit more easier to participate in. Um, And I think we need to see more things like that. We need to see with solar, we need to see with wind and especially offshore wind as well. So the offshore wind industry is going to create new businesses, make new manufacturing centers. And I think it will become important to make sure that people in the communities that are close to this investment are able to participate. And the reason I say that is, I think it seems to go in cycles, and it is conceivable that at some point, people will simply just demand it. And so I think our industry just needs to do a better job of bringing people from underserved communities into the industry.
0: Yeah. I mean, I totally agree from like a consumption point of view, but also like from a jobs point of view, like this could be such a game changer for a lot of these communities from a jobs. I mean, these are really good jobs.
1: Absolutely. They're great jobs. They pay well and they're transferable to so many other things. And I think as an industry, we all need to participate. And there are
0: people who are already working on this, but, I think we all need to do more. Yeah. So what advice would you give those looking to follow in your footsteps? So for example, did you have impactful mentors along the way or other experiences that helped you enter into and succeed within the clean energy industry? Yeah, no, absolutely. I've
1: been very, very lucky to work with people that I admire. At my old firm, I worked with Kate Martin, who's the founder of the industry, as I <laughs> joke. But he's definitely somebody that I've always admired. And I think, in my experience, it's important to learn not just from people senior to you, but from people more junior. I think I used to be somebody who would print every single piece of paper. You know, just (laughs) that's just how I would read. I would just print the document and read it until somebody who was a first year at that time working for me convinced me that you don't need to do that. Like you could just read the PDF. You know, you know, and I started learning that and I started doing that. You know, I think my point is you can learn from anybody, whether senior or junior, so long as you're a bit humble to pay attention to what people are actually saying. And yeah. that's, that's really what I'll recommend to people.
0: It's such a good point because I think everybody always thinks of mentorship as like somebody like more senior than you or older than you, like wiser than you. But there are a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom people younger than you can, uh, can bestow upon you as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) That's absolutely true.
0: They look at things with a different lens, I guess. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. And I wish you the best of luck at Aiken.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much, Catherine. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening to the Greenlight Podcast. Are you looking for your next role in climate tech? Join the latest growing network of clean tech professionals and be the first to know about when industry-leading clean tech companies first post new job openings, from development to finance to marketing, by checking out our website, dylan-green.com latest hyphen jobs. Dylan Green is transforming business through talent. You can also find us on YouTube where we engage with today's top clean energy leaders.